Episode 61, Laura Kriska, author of The Business of We. My favorite mistake could have been avoided with one sentence. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more information, you can go to markgraben.com slash mistake61. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And now, on with the show. Our guest today is Laura Kriska. She describes herself as a cross-cultural consultant and author. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about her. But first off, Laura, thank you for being here on the podcast. How are you? Oh, thanks, Mark. I'm really glad to be here. So Laura has a really interesting background. Um, When she was just 22, she was the first American woman to work in the Tokyo headquarters of Honda Motor Company. And her experience working there with thousands of middle-aged Japanese men inspired her to write her first book, The Accidental Office Lady. And then she has, uh, she's written, her latest book is called The Business of We, and we'll have a chance to talk about all of that today. Um, How do we um, have an approach to diversity and cultural, building bridges across cultural differences and being more inclusive in a way that increases employee retention and productivity and is just good. It sounds like Mage's first question is, you know, this is good for the people involved and for the organizations when we take an approach like that. Mm-hmm. It is good. <laughs> I asked a closed-ended question. That was a mistake on my part. That was really bad interviewing. Um, but we'll talk more about the book. Please forgive my mistake, Laura. No problem. I put you in a bad position there, but um, I'm going to ask an open-ended question here to really um, to get things off to a better start. Laura, looking back at your experiences, what would you say is your favorite mistake? My favorite mistake caused me a year of heartache, confusion, and unhappiness. My favorite mistake could have been avoided with one sentence. And my favorite mistake has informed my entire 30-year career and is the basis of the book I just wrote, The Business of We. Wow. So you're teeing that up well. Can you tell us what happened? My favorite mistake was failing to see that cultural data matters and that it matters all the time and that most of cultural data, meaning ways that people are different, different norms of behavior, Um, that these differences are sometimes visible, but mostly invisible. So let me tell you what happened. I was 22. I'm in Tokyo at the door of Honda Motor Company. I am so excited to be starting my very first professional job. I look like a professional woman. I have on this cream-colored suit. I have an empty briefcase that matches, but it's, you know, a matching briefcase. And I uh, go to my job. Uh, There's a little detour where I am asked to wear a polyester blue uniform that's only for women. 
which I do because I am flexible and I can adjust to cultural norms. This is how I thought of myself. Um, I had a lot of experience in Japan before I even got there, so I thought I knew what I was getting into. And I am introduced to the group of 10 Japanese women that I'm going to be working with for a year. We were the executive secretariat, and we served the 40 directors of Honda Motor Company. And within hours, I offended the most important office lady without realizing it. And I did that because I failed to recognize that she was a senior person. I couldn't see that she was senior because there were no visible indicators that she was senior. We all wore the same blue uniform. We sat at the same white desks. We did the same job serving tea and cleaning ashtrays. That's another story. (laughs) (laughs) The ashtrays in Japan, there's still a lot of smoking in Japan now. But yes, this was at the time there was it was welcome in the office. And I treated her as I was taught and to be in a professional environment, which was to be polite and respectful. But I failed to show deference. Um, I don't know if you've ever done um, uh, martial arts, but I had uh, practiced a martial art. And there, in, in martial arts, there are two groups of uh, people. There are black belts and there are white belts. And in a dojo, white belts show deference. They get there early. They clean up the mats. They wash the stuff. They're, you know, they get beat up by the black belts. That's how it works. And even though I had that experience in a dojo, I failed to understand how important hierarchy is in a Japanese workplace. Because in America, there is a a narrative uh, that's very strong and important that we learn growing up, which is treat everybody the same, equally. We don't treat people differently because of what they look like or where they come from. And so my method of starting a relationship, right, this is something everyone in business needs to do, is start good professional relationships. So I treated her the same. And that was my mistake. Wow. Um, Now, you said it could have been avoided by one sentence. Mm -hmm. What, What was that sentence or what was the opportunity to use it? So it took me a while to understand that this hierarchy mattered and that uh, I I started to understand how people showed deference. And and it's not just Japan. There are many organizations uh, or countries, you know, any country with a king or a queen, Thailand, England, you know, there are lots of countries that pay attention to these kind of things. And, And the United States is one that really doesn't. And I recognized how if I had simply used the following sentence, so, so, you know, when I would ask her things, I would just say, like I would say to you, oh, Mark, could you tell me where we keep the pens or um, where is the tea or something? And it was very egalitarian. It was polite, but it was egalitarian. And the one sentence, if I could go back in time, I would have used is this. I'm sorry to bother you, Mark. Could I ask you a few questions right now? Right. A little bit of deference, acknowledging her years of service, her experience, her skill. And it never occurred to me because I wasn't looking for invisible cultural difference. And I thought I understood it. 
Now, what you described there in that that sentence, basically, can can I ask you some questions? You know, that's not over the top like uh, brown nosing or kissing up, but I guess just that that act of respect of asking the question of can I ask you questions instead of just jumping in in a way that might have seemed demanding. I assumed uh, an equal status with her that didn't exist in, from her point of view. And it was true. I had no experience. I was operating in a foreign country, in a foreign language, in a job she could do backward and forward. And, and, and I'm completely comfortable showing deference to people who know more than I do and, and understand things and have worked longer and harder. But it's just not something I recognized as important in that situation. And that's what I mean, that cultural data matters all the time. And when we travel to another country, it's more it's easier to see this and we can uh, be prepared for it. But cultural data matters everywhere, all the time, even with people who you think you're in alignment with. So you talk about, um, there's a couple of things about the story maybe we ask you to elaborate on. You talk about this uniform that you were given, the blue polyester uniform. Um, the times when I've been to Japan and you're on um, the train and you see commuters, whether it's men or women, you see black suit, black suit, black suit, men and women, black suit, maybe dark gray but i don't like there's there's there is like very much a business uniform mm-hmm. um a lot of ties and and so I'm, I'm i'm curious did did even that light colored business suit sort of stand out in a way that um is is maybe uncomfortable in japanese culture you're there like the, you're there you're already standing out um as an as an american mm-hmm I might as well have not, I should have just shown up in jeans because my business clothes were not uh, welcome. It w- wasn't appropriate for that um, at, at the time. And, and actually, there's a kind of interesting story of uh, I finally challenged that um, that rule after two years of working in Japan. And this was based on this idea that I talk about in my book, which is us versus them. And I was very much of them when I showed up in Japan, even though I wanted to be there, you know, the way I spoke Japanese, the way I looked, the way I dressed, you know, I was outside the norms and the home team in that case, the home team is whatever group is in the dominant position was middle-aged Japanese men. And so from the beginning, I felt I was, I had a marginalized voice. I was an outsider. And, and so I had to work to kind of fit in and uh, the uniform was a part of that. So I, I just really hadn't prepared as well as I should have. Well, I was about to ask, you know, when you say preparation, what did the company do to help prepare you as an outsider to Japanese culture. And I, and I saw from one of your videos, um, you were born in Japan, mm-hmm. but not really raised there. It, can you can you tell us more mm-hmm. about that? A little bit more about your background and then to the question of, you know, d- did the company set you up for success or not in mm-hmm. terms of cultural norms and expectations? Well, I, uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio from the age of two. So I have no memories of Japan, but my parents loved Japan. I love Japan. Um, So when I was a college student, I got the chance to spend my junior year 
at a university in Tokyo, which was great. And so having that level of familiarity gave me the sense that I knew everything. Now, remember, I was 22. (laughs) Most 22-year-olds think they know everything. (laughs) So some of that was just my generation. And the company, I they tried to prepare me. I think the company also didn't know what they were doing. They had great intentions. They were trying to internationalize. Um, but Japan is a country at the time that was 99% Japanese. Uh, now it's 98% not Japanese people. So there's a lot of homogeneity, like you mentioned, your observations on the trains and seeing how people tend to dress alike, etc. So I had to figure out a lot of this on my own. And this is part of the reason I wrote my first book, The Accidental Office Lady, was to share the lessons that were kind of hard won for me and, and trying to share those with other professionals. Because when we figure out the us versus them dynamics, when we can narrow the gaps Instead of spending our time feeling unhappy and confused and, you know, having poor communication and ineffective teamwork, we actually can use our time and our skills and our talents toward innovation and great results, et cetera. And that's the premise of the new book, which is how to identify us versus them dynamics and then how to address the ones that are most damaging in any organization. Yeah. So the, the book title, again, uh, is The Business of We. And, and Laura, you, you talked about how this formative mistake, this experience that you made um, helped spark a career's worth of interest. Um, so what, what, were some, what were some of those experiences then in, uh, that you had even at Honda in Japan of starting to break down us versus them into, into we? Mm hmm. So I worked with a group of 10 Japanese office ladies. We had the same jobs, and I was the youngest member of the group. And I got to know them over time, all the office ladies. And there were two in particular who I just really bonded with. I was eager to make connections. I, you know, I was alone. I was single. I was very open to building meaningful relationships, even outside of work. So there were two women in particular. We would have lunch together. We got to know each other. We started hanging out on the weekends. We started traveling together. So these became my people. And that narrowed the gap for me personally in the workplace because I could then go to them. They were my allies. Uh, I could help them with things that related to English language or other things. And But we became real friends. And so... uh, through the process of becoming real friends, we developed trust. I learned lots of things that, you know, it took me time. And one of the things that I learned um, was that they didn't like the uniforms. I was, I was so surprised. I had made assumptions, as we all do, that since no one complained and they wore the uniforms, this was a policy that had been in place for years and years, you know, hundreds of women in this headquarter office wearing uniform, um, I was surprised, but it was the process of face-to-face interactions of increasing depth that led to the building of trust that then led to me learning this piece of information. And then uh, the company um, sponsored an annual uh, quality circle. This is a familiar uh, phrase to you, I know. 
And they, they called it NH circle, new Honda circle. And, at, you know, it's a mechanism of change. Uh, and they invite all employees, hey, participate in this year's, you know, uh, new idea, circle ideas, etc. So I had this knowledge that other women didn't like the uniform. So I started a circle, a quality circle to abolish women's uniforms. and I recruited other members. Yeah. Did that seem risky or or did you feel like, okay, no, they're, they're, they're asking for this input. I'm going to give it. It did not feel risky. It was exactly what they were asking for. And I stayed exactly within the parameters that they requested. And, and Honda is a company that is genuinely interested in innovations that will improve things. Usually it has to do with improving safety, saving costs, uh, increasing production, as you know. Um, and so this was a little bit outside of that. I remember feeling encouraged when I saw another Circle's idea, which was about smoking. And it was about limiting smoking. So it was a behavioral norm that they were trying to change. And I was trying to change this somewhat of a behavioral rule. And I pulled together a group. There were... Um, there were no Japanese men. I couldn't get any Japanese men involved, but ha- several Japanese women. There's a French guy, uh, an American guy, and we started the process as a quality circle is done, where you you know you research, you study, and and we really dug into it. What are other companies doing? Uh, how much does this cost the company? We in fact discovered that um, the women's locker room was taking up quite a bit of so much space in the in the building in. Aoyama in Tokyo, that we were leasing office space in a building next door. So, you know, calculating. And then we did polls. We surveyed women. I remember that was felt a little risky, asking the women to, you know, fill out. This is all paper, right, back then, and asking for their opinions. Um, and when we, you know, it, it took a long time. We proposed this. We, we did the process. And because we weren't really able to prove our outcomes, which is normally necessary, as you well know, um, it was more of an imagined success. And the company decided to um, take our idea and they transferred it outside of the circle system after the first or second rounds of that kind of friendly competition. And a different department then studied it. Now, I was really excited. I was like, look what we've done, you know, in the matter of a few weeks, we have put together and then it went nowhere. Mm, So it was moving it out a way of sort of politely killing the project. Well, that's what I thought. And I would check in every once in a while. And the leader of the group would say, uh, we are studying this. We are researching this. And, Mm -hmm. And I frankly kind of gave up. But then about, I don't know, a few weeks before I was to leave Japan, I had been working there for two and a half years. And the study group had had this idea for, I I think, close to a year. Suddenly, there was an announcement. Starting Monday, women's uniforms will be optional. (laughs) What? We couldn't believe it. We all gathered, the whole team gathered, and we... You know, we learned that they had, in fact, then in very kind of process-oriented, lean fashion, (laughs) perhaps, 
followed every step, studied, you know, the lease next door, the cost, opinions, and they had come to the conclusion that the uniforms should, in fact, be optional. Well, I was wondering because you know, with that with that story, one way I've been to Japan five times on on business learning tours, and the orientation we've received about these trips, um, you know, talks about the cultural norms of maintaining harmony, and where that sometimes between um, hierarchy, seniority, maintaining harmony sometimes makes it difficult for people to speak up with improvement ideas, and. Yeah, I was told stories uh, about like this hesitancy to say no. So the story, the one story I remember, I'm curious your thoughts or reflections on this. Like if you were to go and try to buy tickets for a play mm-hmm. and the play was sold out, mm-hmm. the, the, the person at the ticket counter wouldn't say, no, you can't buy a ticket, but they might turn and pretend to be looking through a box and looking for tickets and that eventually you should get the hint that, well, I guess there are no tickets and I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave um, or, or phrases like, well, it would be difficult. Yes. Yes. So that's what I thought you were getting with this product. Like, can we get rid of the uniforms? Well, it would be difficult. We are researching it. I, I too thought that. Um, but in fact, it was this other cultural issue that took priority, which was being thorough and being careful. If you're going to change a corporate rule that has been in effect for 30 years, let's make sure we're doing it correctly. And I'm happy to report to you that new rule is in effect and has been in effect for now over about 30 years. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, when we talk about, you know, the word harmony mm. and, um, you know, fitting in. So I think that goes to the uniformity of business suits. Nobody talks on the train. Nobody eats. There are certain cultural norms that mm-hmm. are just so accepted. No jaywalking mm-hmm. of like, you know, if, if you see I. I, I you know, it, it would be really rare to see a Japanese person crossing against the light or jaywalking. And these violations of norms become really visible, it seems. Mm-hmm. And and so it was emphasized, like, as, um, you know, as a white visitor, you're already disturbing harmony just by mm-hmm. by being there. You could try to do your best to, to fit in and behave, but you're still disturbing harmony. But of these different words, um, like, like wa, Mm. And 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 uh, as a word for harmony, mm. it's it's interesting that wa and we mm. are only one letter off. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. I want to say it's not, but it is. That's great. I haven't ever thought of that. Look no. at you. Huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's good. But the, but there is this real Japanese sense of. And as much as you can generalize about Eastern cultures, more of a we group oriented mm-hmm. society where, you know, mm-hmm. here in the in the United States, in mm-hmm. a lot of time, a lot of cases, it's every person for themselves. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, some of that now comes out through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of like a broad, I guess, a broad question there. But um, maybe bringing it back to your work with American companies, mm-hmm. like what success have you seen? I'm not saying we're hopeless in terms mm-hmm. of rallying around a goal or focusing on we, like successful companies really seem to do that. So that mm-hmm. was kind of a very broad mm-hmm. rambling <laughs> combination of statement and question. What do you think? I would say that there are two things that I really learned from Japan and, and one of them is good and one's, you know, positive and one's negative. And, and the positive one is, is what you just said. There is a really strong sense of the common good 
in Japan. It, it's taught from a very young age. And it, this is not because Japanese people have a magical ability. It's that they are, they're taught this. It's modeled uh, e- equity in terms of um, earn, uh, income is modeled. You know, you don't get the huge gaps in, in payment in Japan that you see in America. And, you know, that certainly leads to huge us versus them dynamics. You know, when the the CEO is making 300, 400, 500 times the average employee, well, good luck with creating a weak culture. <laughs> sure. And that gap keeps expanding. And the gap is, yes, it's, the gap is much smaller in Japan. And and so that idea of the common good, working toward the common good, I, I, I like that. I think there are times when that's really important. And the COVID epidemic has shown evidence of how working together toward the same goal with certain norms that are in agreement works. Uh, Japan has had fewer than 2,000 deaths of COVID-19, where America is over now 500,000, because we have... Um, allowed a culture of us versus them to exist over proven practices and norms that keep everyone safe. So this should not be an us versus them mask or no mask. It should be a simple tug of war, humans versus virus. That's the only us versus them that is actually at play here. So Countries like Japan, who were able to pull together, get behind leadership, having leadership talk about us, you know, us, we humans versus the virus, um, have been more successful. So there absolutely uh, is an important place for behaving in a more common way. And Japanese culture, Japanese people tend to be really good at that. So I admire that and I've learned from that. It has informed my work. The part that does not or help help me see uh, where us and them dynamics can be difficult is when I worked with Japanese expats, uh, expatriates, and we call them rotational staff sometimes. When they would leave Japan, and go work in Paris or London or Sao Paulo. And because of their lack of familiarity with the local culture, maybe hiding behind language concerns, they would often not integrate with the local culture. And they just hung out with each other. They made all the decisions. Uh, They had all the positions of power. And they would fail to take into consideration data from people in the local environments. And this made them less competitive. It caused human relations complaints and even legal problems in some cases. And I, so I, I spent my career helping that dynamic uh, to be less damaging, to help those very hardworking, talented, deeply loyal um, professionals learn to integrate more successfully with people who didn't look like them, who didn't sound like them, who didn't pray like them, who were just, you know, they were different. And doing that for so many years, um, I noticed another parallel, Mark, <laughs> which is right here in the United States. Uh, we like to say, oh, we're so diverse. And certainly our demographics are show that we are diverse, but we are pretty segregated when it comes to the top levels of corporate America. And what I recognized was the the homogeneity of Japan was duplicated and the top levels of 
corporate America. And so instead of middle-aged Japanese men, it's middle-aged white men. And I, I always like to make a disclaimer. I am not against middle-aged white men. <laughs> I'm married to one, and I've created two future white men for the planet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and as a, as a middle-aged white man, I take no offense. I, I, I see what, what, what you're getting at. Um, yeah, because there, there is that. So you were an outsider trying to fit into the dominant Japanese culture. When I've talked with um, black friends and colleagues, they talk about the struggle of fitting into I mean, no offense. What is the dominant white culture mm -hmm. in workplaces and in America? And um, when you are part of the homogeneous um, group um, that's that's dominant, um, it's it's eye opening to hear the things that I take for granted. So I've come to understand the word privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have that. Can't mm -hmm. be denied. Mm -hmm. I can try to to deal with it, and I can try to use it to to elevate others. But mm -hmm. the privilege doesn't go away, at least not in the short term. Even mm -hmm. if we're working toward that, mm -hmm. I like to uh, refer to this in the book. I call it the home team because what does a home team have? An advantage, right? So the the every organization has a home team different departments i have a friend who works in a, a huge company and in her department she's a middle-aged white woman um there are many chinese speaking women and so the dominant the home team in that department is chinese speaking middle-aged women so the idea of a home team uh can apply to many situations, just as us versus them can apply to many situations. And it's incumbent upon those of us on a particular home team to see it, recognize the advantages, just like you said, and then take action. This is we building is taking action to actively narrow a gap between you and somebody who does not identify with that home team. Yeah. So the closest I mean, I think of the situation and I, I haven't been greatly disadvantaged in any of the situations, but sometimes it's almost funny where in the work I do with hospitals, um, the home team is, uh, let's say, nurses mm -hmm. and they're all women. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the only man and the only engineer, the only non-nurse in a meeting mm -hmm. or in a room um, that does sometimes give me pause. But mm -hmm. again, like there's no great harm or discrimination that's mm -hmm. that's come to me but but it's eye-opening to think of of what it's like to be the only one mm -hmm. in the room mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as some of my black friends and colleagues will articulate being in that situation yeah. all the time every day so i often ask people when have you felt like of them and you you just shared an example of when you're in this room and I put being a them, I, I don't think they're all equal. I, I put them in three categories. There are inconsequential experiences, consequential experiences, and game-changing. And game-changing is when you feel like a them every single day, and usually it's based on something about your appearance that people immediately identify and then react to. And, and mine was, like I said, no harm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes so, there are misunderstandings or what have you. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. um, so one other thing, though, when you talk about us versus them, you know, I started my career um, not at Honda, but in General Motors mm -hmm. in Michigan, 1995. My mm -hmm. goodness, us versus them mm -hmm. was at the core of General Motors and the United Auto Workers. Mm -hmm. And there were efforts to try to turn that like the, the first man, the first plant manager I worked under was a total us versus them. Mm -hmm. 
Then I had a second plant manager who had experiences being trained by Toyota in California. Mm. He was trying to create a weed culture. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult and there was progress being made. Mm. And and the one parallel that comes to mind, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes, Laura wrote a very nice article in CEO World Magazine saying COVID-19 is not killing us, polarization is. And the thought that comes to mind, thinking back to the Detroit automakers, mm-hmm. I would say at the, you know, at the time, it was not the Japanese automakers that were killing them. It was polarization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That culture within the automakers was mm-hmm. so toxic and mm-hmm. so dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And I do not blame the union for that. Mm-hmm. Long story short. And I think it, it, you know, my cursory understanding of GM and Chrysler and, you know, and how those organizations operated that, you know, play so many, there were so many indicators of us versus them and divisions, you know, executive cafeterias, selected parking lots, huge salaries, um, what you wear. And, and if you look at places like Toyota and Honda, I mean, I know from Honda's, my own experience, they took practical, uh, they made practical choices to limit those things. So for example, there was no executive dining room, literally, like everybody ate in the same cafeteria, you ate the same food, we wore the same white coveralls with our name and a red, you know, patch. Uh, There were not special uh, parking lots. Uh, The salary differentiation was not as huge. And those are meaningful. Those strategies are meaningful and create much more of a feeling of we. And and those are the things I really admire. In some hospitals, you still have special dining room for the physicians. You have a physician's lounge that has, I remember one case, much bigger, nicer TV than the break room for the nurses and other staff. And, And it's unfortunate when there's us versus them because the we mentality in healthcare should be completely oriented around the patient. Yes. And their care. And us versus them distracts from that. Absolutely. Why are there different uh, lounges for physicians and nurses? Um, Tradition, hierarchy, power, Mm -hmm. because we can. um, You know, so it's the dynamic of sometimes, you know, the the physicians or surgeons are seen as people who bring revenue. Mm-hmm. into the hospital in mm-hmm. American healthcare. Mm-hmm. They're not employees. They have choice mm-hmm. of like, well, mm-hmm. so we're going to cater to them. Yeah. They're yeah. not quote unquote stuck here. And you'd hate to think, you know, uh, your, your basis of anything is that my nurses or whoever are stuck here. You should be competing for their loyalty every day. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminds me, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, please. It reminds me exactly of organizations where, you know, you have sales and marketing and accounting, you know, all these different departments. And there is that hierarchical money earning departments versus money using departments. And when the leadership goes along with that narrative and prioritizes the so-called money makers, that's a bad choice. That is leading to us versus them dynamics that undermine the entire competitiveness of the organization. And when you point out to a very successful salesperson 
you know, you can't really do this well without the accounting department and, and the the uh, marketing staff and, and the lawyer who's doing, you know, and, and there's this idea that people in accounting or whatever are interchangeable. And it's just so false. And, and certainly there is a role for compensating people differently based on their education, skills and experience and performance. Um, but if you have such a divided attitude toward your own team, you are undermining uh, undermining the overall competitiveness. And, and one example I think of, of uh, an executive I admire a lot who created a we culture um, was Paul O'Neill, who passed away about a year ago. He was CEO of Alcoa mm. in uh, Pittsburgh. And there are great videos online of him touring uh, media through this new headquarters that they built where everybody, including Mr. O'Neill was in a cubicle and I call him Mr. O'Neill out of deference. He would be quick to say, call me Paul. Mm-hmm. And he got rid of when he became CEO, there, there are stories that we've been able to share. Um, he got rid of the executive dining room and these different perks and started challenging like the idea that you're an executive and you show up and you get free orange juice and Danish every morning. And he's like, we pay you well, you can afford that. Right. Do we do we do we offer that to every employee? And he got rid a lot of those. He got rid of a lot of those trappings of mm-hmm. privilege and hierarchy mm-hmm. in, in many ways. And and one you know that I admire him for, he got rid of the company country club membership because the country club was not diverse. And this was in, I think, the late 80s. I so, like you know, that. <laughs> I think Paul O'Neill um, was was a we leader. I would call him a we builder. We builders. I mean, this is what I, I am. My life's mission is to inspire a we building revolution. And I can't do it by myself. I need your help and all of your listeners' help. And in calling out we builders is a great example. And anybody can be a we builder. You don't have to be the CEO. You, you know, we building and being a we builder means identifying the gap and then taking action to bridge that gap. It can be as simple as noticing a newcomer or somebody who might not belong to the home team in terms of their identification and learning that person's name and calling them by that name every day when you see that person. Uh, you know, just really simple acts can uh, in, can, can um, manifest inclusion that then is duplicated by others. Uh, and, you know, it's really, it can be contagious. So I appreciate what you're doing, Laura, to help spread that. I think, you know, if people want to become a we builder, I, I definitely recommend um, checking out the book, The Business of We, um, written uh, by our guest again. Um, she is Laura Kriska. So, Laura, um, thank you so much. This is I, I really appreciate the, 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 the fact that, um, that, that, that I can have you on, on the show and, you know, the, the experiences that you have. Uh, maybe we can do another episode in my lean podcast sometimes because there's this overlap where there's so much I want to ask about your experiences in Japan, your experiences at Honda. Let's talk more about being a wee builder for, uh, for a different podcast audience sometime. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for um, your story and uh, for taking that mistake and, and building it into um, something really special. So thank you for that, Laura. Thanks again. Well, again, I want to really thank our guest, Laura Kriska, 
For a link to her website and to her book and for more information, you can go to markgraben.com slash mistake61. If you liked today's episode, if you like the podcast in general, please share it with a friend or with a colleague or on social media that would really help us grow the show. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes and how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.